arm sales are a way of uh, keeping the relationship alive even when there are political tensions, right? So, um, you know, it, in a way, defense relations are the default mode of that, this relationship. Welcome to TCF World Podcast, Episode 11. Why we shouldn't expect an Arab NATO, at least not anytime soon. On this episode of TCF World, we'll talk to Brian Katulis, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and then after the break to Emil Hokayam, a senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. Uh, Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to be with you, Thanasi. So, Brian, you've been part of uh, this project, Order from Ashes, New Foundations for Security in the Middle East. Uh, and before we get into some of those ideas of yours, I just want to uh, ask you a little bit about the research you did for this project, which uh, I think began as a question of whether there's any prospect of building something like an Arab NATO or an Islamic NATO for the Middle East, some kind of peacekeeping force. Um, and w- what did you find was, was the prospect for some kind of regional entity? Well, this chapter is is informed by another piece of research I did back in 2016 with my colleagues at the Center for American Progress um, that was aimed at outlining a new strategy uh, for the next, at the time, the next U.S. administration. And what we looked at were um, a more immediate, some of the proposals for security cooperation that we had heard from um, Egypt's President Abdel Fattah Sisi um, and, and others. And... Um, offered some, I think, modest ideas about what the U.S. Uh, could do. In this particular chapter, uh, what was uh, fun to do was to take a look at the history of attempts of secure, at security cooperation in the Middle East uh, for, for more than uh, 50 years or so, and then outline the lessons for the prospects of broad partnerships in the near future. So if it's, uh, if it's more or less impossible to imagine some kind of unified Arab peacekeeping force that could go into a conflict like Syria uh, or into a place like Yemen for a variety of reasons, including because some of the uh, nations involved are combatants in the war. Uh, what What is possible? What are the sort of lesser, uh, lesser gambits uh, that aren't pipe dreams? Some of the more modest uh, examples of cooperation, which we've seen already, um, and some of them actually haven't been great for regional security, say Saudi Arabia's cooperation, uh, with the UAE uh, in, in Yemen, uh, demonstrates that at least at an operational and tactical level, countries are trying to um, get their militaries together. Now, the problem, of course, with Yemen is that it's been devastating and actually contradictory and co- runs contrary to to what the stated goals are, which is strengthening the state system. So that's one. I think the, the anti-Islamic state coalition uh, that was assembled in 2013 2014, um, and still fights to this day, offers some examples where countries have come together uh, uh, to to, to actually work on some of the military operations that have led to the Islamic State's essential military defeat in Iraq and and Syria, and that the multinational air campaign has provided some crucial lessons learned, again, mostly at that tactical and operational level. Um, there are other examples where where countries have cooperated, uh, and again, the results have not been great in places like Libya, like the like the different coalitions from the region that are fighting on different sides of the Libyan civil war. Yeah, exactly, war, right? Libya. Um, um, and and part of that is uh, if if you go to these countries as I do, and you talk to the leaders and people who have initiated some of these 
campaigns, they really don't have uh, strategic clarity about what the end state um, is. And it's if they do, it's not realistic. And, and, and in that regard, it's not dissimilar to what I heard from the George W. Bush administration when they talked about the Iraq war. Um, and when you have that lack of precision or lack of realism um, when it comes to the, the end state that these military operations are driving towards, because it's not just the military components that are key for stabilization. It's it's what kind of governance will come next? What's the economic model? And it's those sorts of things that uh, have hampered uh, any effort to actually produce success on the ground. So, so but to answer your, your initial question, I think taking some of these efforts by countries themselves that have been much more organic, that have been driven by their own threat perceptions, how they see their own immediate environment and what they need to attend to, uh, is much more effective than I think some sort of more uh, theoretical or academic effort to impose a broad region-wide uh, coalition. Uh, so, so actually tapping into the self-defined interests of these countries and then trying to help guide them uh, in a sense towards uh, better success than they've had to date to produce uh, stability in the region. So absent, I mean, I think we, we, we all agree there's, there just isn't a, a fertile uh, climate for, for like a real strategic uh, uh, confluence of visions among these states. So we're looking at something that's much more uh, sort of basic building blocks, some kind of, some kind of security architecture that, that allows them to interact, whether it's over like you just suggested, shared, uh, shared uh, threats or uh, maybe opportunistic uh, uh, in, in interference in some some neighbor, uh, but 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 so I mean I, a couple of, of of problems with that leap to mind, and one is that uh, even among really like-minded subgroups in the region, so say the 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 Arab Gulf. Uh, countries in the GCC, uh, or the countries that all supported the Syrian rebels, uh, or the group that is supporting uh, Khalifa Haftar in, in Libya, even those like uh, unsavory or, or opportunistic uh, small coalitions don't have a shared uh, uh, even tactical set of goals, much less strategic vision. Uh, so what are what are the kinds of things we're talking about? Just getting you know, basic basic interop military interoperability communications channels. Like what is the what is the thing uh, that you that, that that one would try to promote uh, when you're talking about about security cooperation or architecture? Yeah, it's 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 at at those sort of very basic levels and defining something that actually is specific and and is achievable uh, for these countries when it comes to cooperation. So so a good example would be rather than undermining state stability in Yemen, um, taking the tools that, say, the United States offers in cooperation uh, with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and encouraging them to, to actually produce some sort of meaningful success that, that actually isn't just defeating your, your adversary, but then producing some sense of stability and then the building blocks for governance. And, and again, not the U.S. doing this, but helping these countries work through that. Another example might be, in, in the Sinai in Egypt, um, where we do know from reporting that it's not just the Egyptians that are fighting there. There has been a coalition that has uh, tried to support the efforts that have not been very successful to date. So having something that is quite modest, maybe even just part of the Sinai, and demonstrating this as a, as a model for success uh, for not only the Egyptians themselves, but the types of cooperation 
that have happened, or or eastern Libya and other places. So so thinking small with those building blocks, because the problem with uh, going towards sort of a bigger effort at regional uh, security cooperation is this lack of consensus across the region. I, I remember going to uh, the region I go quite often in in early 2014 and meeting with the leaders of Jordan and then the UAE and then uh, Israel. And in these three countries, which at the macro level, many analysts describe as aligned uh, against Iran and concerned about a number of different things, their priorities were just completely different. The Jordanian leadership was first and foremost concerned about the Syrian civil war. That was their number one priority. The Israelis were concerned about Iran and saw that as a strategic threat. And the Emiratis uh, at that time, and I think even to this day, were concerned about uh, political Islam and, and the Muslim Brotherhood. So those competing strategic priorities really made it hard for anyone to uh, uh, who, who would propose some sort of grand regional Arab NATO, for instance, uh, in, in tacit cooperation with Israel to, to uh, counter Iran in any meaningful way. So it's better, I think, to, to define something that is more modest at the even subnational level in places like Yemen or inside of Egypt. And, and something that is very small and modest um, that, that demonstrates success. And it's, it's very fashionable these days to, uh, uh, to sort of downplay the potential for any American impact uh, in the region, uh, especially any positive impact. Uh, and at the same time, the, the umbrellas that exist or the, the successful coalitions that exist, like the anti-ISIS uh, campaign uh, and even the 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 arms client. I mean the 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 arms clients in the Gulf, whose entire military infrastructure is provided by the United States and is is interwoven with U.S. bases in the region. Those seem to be the 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 two most potent examples of some kind of existing architecture with all the with all the drawbacks that it obviously entails. Uh, what um, I mean, I, I'm curious on two levels. One, what is the potential for the U.S. to play a role in deepening some kind of architecture or cooperation uh, in the security sphere? Uh, and two, uh, under Trump, does that change or, or, or sort of under the, 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 does the trajectory remain the same uh, despite the, the rhetoric? I think the potential is greater than most uh, observers realize because the U.S. does actually have a lot of leverage given these relationships it's built up across the region since the 1980s. Uh, the problem is um, successive uh, U.S. governments have not been willing to use that leverage to shape and influence the actions of, of our partners in the region. Um, even under President Obama, who had pretty bad relations with many of the Gulf countries, he was unwilling to use uh, leverage in 2015 um, to, to shape the actions of Saudi Arabia and the UAE on, on the Yemen war. Um, and that's for a, a range of complicated reasons. Um, but I think we have a great deal of influence. Now, the challenge here is that most of these countries themselves resist um, any sort of regional cooperation, even when they have a natural interest uh, with, with other countries in the region. They prefer a hub-and-spoke um, relationship with the United States, meaning they 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 put a higher premium, um, Saudi Arabia, for instance, on the bilateral relationship, just because with the United States, just because the U.S. has such superior firepower and capabilities. So, in, in a sense, this this dangerous and dysfunctional 
dependency on the United States security umbrella, which has actually been quite incomplete, hasn't been great for the region overall, um, combined with this unwillingness on the part of successive U.S. administrations to basically use its leverage and, and uh, in essence, have a deeper conversation with each of the countries saying, look, we, we, we want to move you towards greater cooperation amongst uh, each other. Take care of your own problems. Now, is this somehow in in America's interest to have uh, to have this hub and spoke model, where uh, which pr- prevents Arab countries from pooling their resources in a way that would allow them to say balance Israel or defy the United States uh, on a, on security issues? In some in some ways, that's that's I think been a consequence um, uh, of that, but I don't think that's the intention. If that makes any sense, um, uh, there is no grand plan or theory. Um, uh, coming from the United States about the Middle East, uh, nobody's really driving that, and I think that's. Uh, but but that is in essence what what's been created. Uh, what I'm saying is that if you look over the trajectory of the next couple of decades, a smart thing to do would be to encourage this cooperation, um, because the Arab states, in essence, have a, a lot of problems that are largely internal um, to their own countries that that are undermining security. Um, and and would be good in, in the U.S. interest to move to, towards this model because most Americans simply don't want to invest as much as we've had in the Middle East. Now, to your second question on Trump, I, I think we've moved far away from any sense that the United States might use any leverage um, uh, with, with these countries. And in, in essence, President Trump has offered a blank check uh, to, to some of our closest partners rather than trying to motivate them in, in any uh, particular way. And I think that's a real missed opportunity. I think Trump came into office and did some important things symbolically to try to reassure uh, some countries like Saudi Arabia uh, uh, and Israel um, and to deal with this trust deficit that had emerged under the Obama administration. But then he squandered what I think was uh, leverage in, in in, in trying to, in essence, uh, allow these countries in the region to continue to do what they're doing and not really shape their actions in ways that benefit their interests or ours. Well, let's hope that uh, that that a decade hence uh, we we see a a Middle East that's at least moving somehow in the direction of coordination instead of deeper entropy. Uh, thanks a lot. I was talking with Brian Katulis at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., and this is Thanasi Kambanis in Beirut. After the break, uh, we'll be talking to Emil Hokayem. Order from Ashes, New Foundations for Security in the Middle East, is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability, You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. This is Thanasi Kambanis. I'm back now uh, talking on the phone with Emil Hokayem, the senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's talking to me from London. Emil, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So in your report on uh, uh, for this project, for Order from Ashes, on the Gulf states, uh, you make an argument that, uh, that, that the Gulf states are struggling uh, to find the right balance uh, among the different kinds of external allies uh, that they depend on for security. Uh, c- can you explain, explain how that works and explain where, where America and who else fits into this sort of seesaw uh, balancing act? 
So the Gulf states are keenly aware of their own uh, weaknesses, uh, whether uh, in terms of size, in terms of uh, geographic uh, position, in terms of uh, level of uh, institution building, in terms of military strengths, etc. So they have sought all along their history to find those uh, external security partners uh, that can provide for external security. Basically, they have a grand strategy, which is to internationalize their security, uh, which means basically building ties with as many relevant uh, uh, nations as possible um, in security, political, economic terms, uh, so that these nations have a stake in the security, survival, stability and success of these states. Um, and the difficulty uh, is that uh, those Gulf states don't necessarily share the same uh, vision. Uh, they're often competitors in that sense. Uh, the second one is that it's precisely this search for security that at times uh, creates or exacerbates uh, uh, sources of tension within the region. Now, Traditionally, uh, since 1971, uh, when the Brits um, uh, lowered their presence in the region, um, the U.S. has played uh, this role of uh, external security provider. Uh, and in a way, it worked well for the Gulf states. Um, the U.S. Uh, provided security, military muscle, etc. over time. Took Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait in 1991. That's and, the most prominent example, safe. but even in the 80s uh, during the tanker wars uh, and so on. But the problem is that in a way it made the Gulf states a bit complacent and sometimes uh, 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 willing to be more aggressive than they would have, ha would have been otherwise. Uh, because because the, the biggest kid on the block was, was there for them. Um, so adapting to the changing regional politics and the shifting global balance of power is creating a set of new challenges for the Gulf states. They have to find uh, people to uh, uh, complement, uh, not replace, but complement uh, uh, the, the very specific and, and at times peculiar relationships uh, they've had with, uh, with the U.S., so is this rivals, American rivals like Russia and China who provide that uh, extra extra balance? Or is it American uh, frenemies like Turkey or friends like France? It's, it's a bit everyone. And that's the point uh, in their strategy is that there is no um, real veto on 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 anyone. I mean, uh, of course, uh, they're specific. So, for instance, the UAE uh really distrust Turkey, uh, so doesn't see t Turkey as, a, uh, as uh, a fundamental security partner to the country, while Qatar uh, has good relations with, uh, with Turkey and sees Turkey as part of its uh, security mix. Um, so these are the tensions that actually you know, shape uh, Gulf regional politics uh, today. So, but Pretty much everyone is uh, uh, is uh, 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 you know qualifies uh, to to play that role, um, and and so what's actually what works uh, in favor of the Gulf states is essentially they have uh, the means to their to this end. Um, they use their economic relationships, their sovereign wealth funds, and you know an array of other instruments, including soft power, to build and strengthen those relationships. So, for instance, when the UAE uh, hosts the Louvre in, in Abu Dhabi, 
uh, or Qatar uh, hosts the World Cup uh, in 2022. Uh, it's a way of putting themselves on the map, of strengthening the strategic branding, of reaching to constituencies abroad that otherwise would look at those states in very one-dimensional ways, uh, just as, you know, oil or gas producers, right? But if you add to that relationship, even in non-traditional security terms, you're actually giving a stake to more people in your own security, in your own survival. Now, the, the other problem um, uh, on top of you know, creating or exacerbating tensions within uh, the, the, the Gulf states uh, has to do with Iran. Um, Iran seeks the opposite. Iran argues that the fundamental source of tension in the region is precisely the existence and the role of foreign actors, foreign countries that, who have a security role in the region. So Iran seeks the exit of those, those forces, of those countries, and resents uh, the you know, strong security and defense relationships that, uh, that the Gulf states have with, with other countries, which is totally rational because you know, Iran as a larger country, as a big power, would be a dominant force. If Is that a sincere position, though? I mean, do, do, does does Iran want Russia to have a less uh, pronounced uh, security role in the region, or do they in, only in, dislike in the foreign context, involvement when it's not on their side? It, it, in the current context, uh, Iran does uh, welcome a Russian role because it it it, bit, it balances the U.S. one, but uh, you know the real preference would be for even countries like Russia not to have a regional role in in, in the region. Uh, in, in, uh, in, in the Persian Gulf. Um, so my point here is that, um, you know, there's a big difference between preference and policy, right? Uh, uh, policy is about uh, what can be realistically uh, uh, aimed for and, and implemented. Preferences is, uh, you know, uh, basically they're wet dreams at times. Uh, so you can't always pursue your preferences in, in this case. Um, so, so, yes, I mean, you know, Russia has re-emerged in, in the Middle East uh, since its intervention in Syria as a, as a key player. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, courted by, by a lot of uh, uh, regional powers. Um, they see Russia as uh, inescapable, um, uh, inescapable interlocutor in some places. In others, they see it as actually as a preferred interlocutor. And we see this, for instance, over Libya. Um, and um, and other places. Now the the problem with Russia is that it's it's unclear what real offering it can uh, make to the Gulf states. I mean, you know, it can, you know, Russia essentially exports oil and weapons, um, energy and weapons, and the Gulf states are, you know, these are not the two things they they need the most. Uh, they can get their weapons elsewhere. Although we see a new trend, for instance, with Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Um, you know, discussing the purchase of uh, the S-400 uh, missile defense system uh, from, um, from uh, Russia. That would be quite significant at a time where, uh, you know, the, the Americans have been trying to push for the SAD and, and other systems. Well, so that, I mean, that, I was actually going to ask you about arms sales. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, one of the mysteries for me in trying to understand the, the dynamics of the Arab Gulf states uh, and, and the U.S. is that, uh, you know, on the one hand, the U.S. has provided this very extensive and expensive security umbrella for so long. And on the other hand, it seems like in practice, uh, uh, the U.S. 
acts as if it needs the Arab Gulf countries more than the Arab Gulf countries act like they need the U.S. Uh, and at, for, at first blush, it seems like uh, it seems like a, you know a sort of alliance problem. How is it that this weaker, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the weaker recipient of aid or of, in this case, security help can can so willfully ignore the the big superpower. Uh, and and the more I look at this unfolding, especially in, in recent years with the Qatar crisis, the war in Yemen and other other things where there have been divergence of preferences uh, and the Arab Gulf countries have been able to do what they want, uh, is the, the the arms sales equation, that the uh, the huge amount of cash that these Arab Gulf countries are able to infuse into the economies of the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, and other uh, arms supplying nations seems uh, to be the most important factor, and and therefore they can have their 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 policy preferences and security preferences on every other front. Uh, is, I mean, does that is is that a reasonable way of trying to to understand this? And and sort of how significant are these arms contracts to the to overall equation? Okay, the f- the first point is to understand the the fundamental rationale from the Gulf states uh, when they buy weapons. Um, the primary rationale is that uh, uh, arms sales, or arm purchases, are a form of insurance policy. This is what essentially ties down, or you know, um, uh, those those uh, large states, France, uh, the U.S., the U.K., and others, is that arms sales are a way to build a military-to-military defense relationship that you know is the bedrock of of the the relationship more broadly. The second point is that arms sales are a way of uh, keeping the relationship alive even when there are political tensions, right? So, um, you know, it, in a way, defense relations are the default mode of that, this relationship. When, when everything is bad, uh, you know, you can still talk to the Pentagon, you can still talk to, you know, the large uh, 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 arm manufacturers, and that keeps the relationship on. So, for instance, uh, uh, you know, during the Obama administration, uh, the, the relationship between the U.S. and the Gulf states got strained at many uh, times. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, defense relations continued. And, and in fact, uh, you know, arms sales increased during that time. So the point is that if you're in the Gulf, if you're a Gulf leader, um, you much prefer talking to military officials, uh, Pentagon people, etc., because it's one dimensional. You talk about security, you talk about defense. Um, when you can't, you know, when you don't have good relations with the White House, uh, because the White House wants to talk about other issues, about human rights, about governance, and so on, uh, then you can you know, go back to your favorite uh, interlocutors, the, the generals and, 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 and others. Um, now, the third point is that I understand why a lot of people, and I'm one of them, are uh, um, shocked by the uh, the amount uh, spent on on arms sales, and, you know, I think this is a very legitimate discussion to have, uh, including from you know the part of Gulf citizens who you know can rightly uh, wonder why so much money is uh, uh, is uh, um, uh, spent uh, uh, in in military gear and kit, uh, and not on you know social services and so on. Although you know the significant amounts are spent on on those issues. 
But the point here is that we shouldn't let the, the sheer numbers basically drive our perception of the balance of power. So I, I work at the ISS, uh, where one of our flagship product is the military balance, where every year we look at uh, you know defense spending and defense budgets, etc., across the world. And you know we see very clearly that the Gulf states are spending more money on that. And in comparison, we look at Iran, which spends less, and therefore people look at the difference and say oh, look, you know, uh, one side is a lot more aggressive than the other. Well, yes and no. I mean, it depends on the strategies you have. It depends on the weaponry you buy. It depends on whether you can deploy that weaponry. Uh, is, it, is it defensive or not? I mean, you know, military uh, uh, missile defense, for instance, is very costly, but, you know, it has not totally deployed at this point, and it's mostly a defensive system. I mean, of course, if you have a conflict, you know, having defense makes you uh, uh, more risk-taking, right? But my point is that the, 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 we, we need to have a more uh, sophisticated, more refined discussion about, about this aspect and just be fixated on the big numbers, which are startling. Uh, I'll, I'll certainly uh, agree with that. Well, does, I mean, does that huge investment uh, in the tens of billions uh, uh, in arms purchased from the United States, does that essentially buy an ironclad alliance politically between Washington and the, and the Arab Gulf states? Yes and no, because uh, first it's important to you know note that uh, the Gulf states are security partners of the U.S. They're not uh, treaty allies. So the U.S., you know, unless there's secret agreements, etc., is not obligated uh, to come to the rescue. Even though the density of the relationship, the tripwire effect, the fact that you have American troops in those countries, etc., really like does amount to a kind of security guarantee. Now the the thing is that. Um, the U.S. says that it's there to defend the external security of the Gulf states. The problem often is that the Gulf states' uh, understanding of external security is not necessarily the same as uh, the U.S. understanding of external uh, security. Um, because, you know, in the Gulf, everything in, in the, the minds of Gulf decision, maker, um, decision makers, uh, everything is connected. So they may fi- uh, 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 face a uh, local opposition or insurgency uh, that, you know, they consider as linked to, you know, Iraq or Iran or others. And then, you know, they say it's an external uh, uh, security threat. So there, there's a lot of um, ambiguity in this relationship. Um, formalizing this the, a security relationship would be also very difficult uh, because, uh, you know, in the U.S., try to imagine the debate in Congress if the, the U.S. were to offer a formal security guarantee to, I don't know, Saudi or some other country uh, the way it has with NATO or other uh, uh, allies and so on. Uh, the, the politics uh, would be very difficult. Uh, likewise, in the Gulf states. Um, you know, the, there is still, uh, you know, a massive anti-American popular sentiments and in, in, even elite sentiments. And certainly in the past, I would say 10 years, with the Obama uh, uh, strategy of retrenchment from, from the region and, and now the, you know, um, I don't know how to characterize the Trump uh, approach to the region, I would say, uh, 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 you know, let's say total disarray, to be honest. Um, you know, if you're the Gulf states, um, you, you really wonder if you really want to uh, um, formalize this, this relationship more. You probably, 
um, what you have right now is probably satisfactory and the most you will ever get. Well, Emil, uh, that ambiguity, I think, drives a lot of the, the instability that we're going to continue to see. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, this is Thanasi Kambanis in Beirut for the TCF World podcast. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.